Appreciate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Today is November 5th, 2017, and we are discussing Stealing Fire, a book by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. So guys, we've made it uh, through part one. What are your uh, you know, quick hot takes on this? I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> My sentiments exactly. I, I felt like I'd never read a book so written for me. Yeah. And, and to the topic of the show, you know, everything, I feel like um, a lot of what the book talks about are things that we have talked about, the, you know, research that we've discussed, um, you know, and it's it just it seemed unavoidable to not talk about the book on the show um, and, you know, probably more than one show's worth of content here. Yeah, completely. I think one of you guys, I think it was you, Brian, who said something about how like every page there's basically somebody we've talked about on the show mentioned, you know, it's like only a couple pages in Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman and Harvard trained classicist, Carl Rock <laughs> argued that the barley in Kaikion might have been tainted with an ergot fungus. Yep. Same fungus generates lysergic acid, a precursor to LSD that Hoffman famously synthesized in his Sandoz pharmaceutical lab. Yeah. When consumed accidentally, ergot prompts delirium, prickly limbs, and the hallucinations known as St. Anthony's fire. Yeah. So it's one of the theories about, you know, what substance they were consuming in that, uh, in that ritual. Exactly. So what the initial quote that you were referring to was from the Eleusinian Mysteries, right? Um, and, you know, the debate around what was really going on there. And, uh, you know, as you said, who knows, maybe it was LSD. I think we've talked about on the show before about how ergot, you know, has come up several times throughout history, you know, Salem witch trials, like various points of hysteria. Um, but this one in particular is really, really fascinating. And, you know, the the title of the book, Stealing Fire, the Eleusinian Mysteries is a relatively contemporary adaptation of that thought where Stealing Fire really comes from r the reference to... Um, Prometheus having stolen fire from the gods, right? So this is kind of, you know, much more modern, you know, 2,000 plus years ago uh, in, in Greek mythology, this uh, idea that what is fire? And that's, I think, that's kind of chapter one, right? That's what it, what it digs into. Like, what does that mean metaphorically? And what does it mean to us as a society? And what, what's the potential there? What is fire? Uh, Brad, how about like an an explanation of uh, you? You were just mentioning the part about you know what stealing fire means or whatever. And how about like linking that to the like the case for ecstasies? Ooh, our first debate. Yeah. <laughs> how to pronounce that word? Ecstasis. Ecstasy. Yeah, I, I always thought of it as ecstasis, like it's the word stasis. I mean, in in Spanish, it's exactly uh, yeah. the same because it comes from that root, like from you know like Greek then through Latin and it's like ex it would be like ecstasy ecstasis ecstasis that is a, that is a debate <laughs> uh yeah ex that's ecstasis well i think i think um they define that so there's a couple thing there's a couple parts uh, in the first chapter mm -hmm. with, with the one that's titled what is this fire uh when it's talking about the switch 
they're talking about the Navy SEALs and and how they need to work together in a in a way where they they can't communicate when they're out in the field and they're operating in a mission. And they talk about that sense of group flow that they get to and that they need to get to, and that the whole purpose of their training and uh, is to get to that point. And so the first part of the book, I think, that defines the term ecstasis or ecstasis, it says the Greeks had a word for this merger, so that kind of social merger um, called ecstasis, the act of, quote, stepping beyond oneself. And then they further qualified it later in the chapter and said, Plato described ecstasis as an altered state where our normal waking consciousness vanishes completely, replaced by an intense euphoria and a powerful connection to a greater intelligence. Yeah, it reminds me of like birds flocking. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and chapter two kind of goes into starting to put terms to it and establish a vernacular for what ecstasis. I can't say ecstasy. I'm just going to stick with ecstasis. <laughs> um, what it means. Uh, but no, that's, that's, I think it's a really, it's kind of the theme of the book, right? You know, fire is ecstasis or ecstasy. And the book's all about that concept and idea. Yeah, and I think he goes on later to kind of break down, I think it's four, correct? So four different yep. kind yep. of ver- versions of, of it. And, uh, and and then I see one of you guys here left the David Foster Wallace quote, which I really liked, because I think we can probably dive into the four uh, types later on. But the David Foster Wallace quote is great. Then he says, the alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. And I think that's a, probably a, a pretty awesome way to uh, just kind of sum up whether whether uh, you're experiencing one of the four versions of that state. It definitely involves an interruption of that sort of nonstop, uh, you know, unconscious flow. Yeah, that quote is from his now pretty famous Kenyan college commencement speech. Um I love that speech, and I really enjoy David Foster Wallace, his writing. Uh, I thought that quote was a great uh, introduction to the, the, you know, this section of the book and the book itself. So should we talk a little bit about kind of, you know, I like the way, you know, for I tend to read more literature. I'm, I'm not, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, and I found the book to be really enjoyable to read um, in that it was written with a good framework you know it, it, it like the first three chapters the the taglines are chapter one what is this fire chapter two um why it matters yeah yeah so what is this fire why it matters and then chapter three is like why we missed it i think you know like what how like how where do we get, kind of go wrong as a society um so what do you guys think you kind of go through those three ideas one at a time uh, a little bit yeah i think that's good good call sure let's do it Chapter one starts with the context of the Navy SEALs and the, the beginning intro has the subtitle, the switch. Mm-hmm. And so it's trying to define what it means when you, what it means when a group of people can kind of quote, flip that switch and tap into to group flow. Mm-hmm. So Brad, you mentioned, um, you know, the myth of uh, Prometheus and uh, they mentioned in the, in, in the book that, you know, this is kind of the root of things uh, was, you know, this, this original stealing of fire or the myth of, of Prometheus stealing fire. Um, and as the book says, you know, he didn't just steal a book of matches, but also the power to seed civilization, language, art, medicine, and technology. 
you know, so the, the concept here at a very like fundamental level is like stealing the, like the, the knowledge, I guess that, you know, one would need, uh, to, you know, like to, to, uh, the, the the mystery stealing the mystery stealing the mm-hmm. sort of core knowledge of of uh you know of humanity in some in some way that otherwise would i guess be guarded by you know some some kind of authority uh, and they get into yeah. that later in the book exactly the fact that it needs to be stolen or historically that that uh ability to transcend an ability to sort of have visions is something that needs to be stolen because it is exactly like you said protected by either the elite or, you know, the church or whomever it is that is um, trying to control access to that. It's kind of interesting. It seems like um, there's a like larger cultural message here where, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, h- humankind, you know, human society has been uh, sort of guided by authoritarian figures, you know, and we, we haven't had a lot of individual like volition. Um, and like, maybe, maybe that's been a good thing. Like maybe up until now, uh, we, you know, it's in, in, in some ways it's been better to have, uh, like a structure imposed upon society from, you know, like a hierarchical structure, like, you know, a top down approach. Um, and now as you know, we've basically disintermediated like everything and we have the ability to communicate like from, you know, point to point, human to human across vast distances and, you know, catalog the world's information and have access to it uh, directly. Um, you know, maybe we're ready to uh, to to hold some of these secrets ourselves and and to uh, you know to transform the, the fundamental nature of society at the same time. You know, maybe finally we're ready to uh, to learn these secrets. That was uh, that was the point I was mentioning to you guys in uh, in sort of before the show was that. Uh, I think when you're reading through the first few chapters, they're they're kind of two thoughts that keep getting at you. One is one, which is sort of about this, about kind of the power structure, um, holding some sort of authority over these kind of States. And maybe not even, it doesn't even have to go as far as these kind of States, but always being kind of like the gatekeepers of, um, of any sort of religious or spiritual experience. And the other one's about sort of the, the substances themselves and whether or not, uh, they require sort of safekeeping and administration and whatnot. And I think as I'm reading the book, I'm not really sure <laughs> completely if I have the answer to either of those questions, but I think they're both fascinating uh, debates. Yeah. And I think there's a probably a good argument on both sides, and I think it probably depends on what the the sort of uh, uh, on the degree of of authority and what sort of authority of it is in in its nature. But, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, Joe, we're definitely in an era where all of the sort of power structures seem to be changing dramatically, uh, even down to questions about, you know, political organization and states and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating question. Like, are we ready for that completely? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the questioning whether it, we're talking about banning something outright versus maybe regulating, you know, these substances. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think we can all agree that banning things is really not uh, constructive in any way. Um, you know, even down to, you know, if, if you broaden the scope to like drugs um, as a, you know, a broader category, um, even the more dangerous ones that um, I think Professor Nutt talks about in chapter three, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. you know, maybe it's not even appropriate to ban those necessarily, 
um, but certainly some form of regulation, but maybe not a regulation that is, uh, you know, imposed so strictly from, you know, uh, by religious institutions or, you know, other political Mm -hmm. structures, maybe, um, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not even sure how that would look, but certainly some way to regulate our use of these things, but make them more available to, you know, to a wider audience. But isn't there, you know, I, I think that the, the professor note study is really fascinating because there are so many different types of substances and, and I think there's an, un, an undeniable truth to everything he says. Uh, however, I feel like in terms of, and, you know, personally, I'm all for the, the, the legalization and regulation of everything, but um, I also think there's sort of a, uh, a, a higher risk with certain substances because of, because of the nature of the experience they provide where, um, you know, perhaps they give more, um, leeway to, I don't know, to some sort of cultish behavior or some sort of, um, you know, manipulation of that experience in and of itself. I mean, there's a ton of power in that experience. And if you were to organize it properly, uh, you, you could certainly create sort of a, a very powerful following behind somebody where is maybe with a more dangerous, you know, quote unquote drug, you wouldn't be able to do that because it doesn't provide the same sort of life altering experience. Right. So these, yeah. these psychedelics maybe are more dangerous in the sense that they, you know, they, they can be, um, misused in that way to, uh, you know, to, to help form a cult of personality around yeah. a you know, leader or something like that. Um, I think but, it's a scary, a scary possibility. I mean, he, he does mention at one point, you know, I mean, you know, that LSD was a fundamental part of Charles Manson's cult. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a, one of the ingredients that kind of allowed that whole uh, kind of culture to be built around Manson. Right. Or the, or like Heaven's Gate, I think was another one that was mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, you know, so what's the right, you know, these are interesting questions. Like what's the right response to that? You know, providing people with more information might allow them to see the risks and, you know, avoid them and, and uh, just mitigate those risks without having to necessarily, you know, uh, control things in, in a more strict way you know, where you have to, I don't know, pass a test or, or you're going to license to use it or, or, you know, I, I don't even know, like what, how would you regulate, how would you mitigate that, you know, that risk of, of somebody, uh, forming a cult, you know, an LSD cult or whatever. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the answer to that question is, but, and, and, and unless I don't even have the, the, the first idea on, you know, on sort of what, uh, you know, the authorities are, are considering there. I think it's interesting. We we very quickly latched on these ideas of hierarchy, authority, and substance, mm-hmm. and the way the the place that the book begins is kind of the fact that it's about Navy SEALs mm-hmm. is is it's using an example of the military that relies on hierarchy. It relies on authority and has nothing to do with substances. So the idea of ecstasis and the idea of kind of flipping that switch, I thought it was really interesting and almost counterintuitive that it begins the conversation around how do these group of individuals get to this level of training uh, and introducing the idea of group flow. And it's the same kind of things that people can access through altered states, but with the Navy SEALs, uh, they are able to do it through rigorous training and there's a term that they use called dynamic subordination, which I thought was a, a cool way to describe it, where 
leadership is fluid and defined by the conditions on the ground. Um, it's the foundation of flipping the switch. And it's, it's almost like we as individuals or in groups, whether it's in, um, you know, any kind of setting can get to that place. But I thought it was interesting how the, the whole idea of ecstasis and the whole idea of, of what the book's trying to talk about doesn't, it, it kind of counters the natural tendency to start talking about substances, uh, by talking about this, this military setting, um, and what what's interesting is we're trying to figure out, I think we naturally kind of talk about how do we do that? How do we control that? How can we mitigate a, a cult uh, kind of takeover of people and, and having it be injurious? Uh, the way they talk about the Navy SEALs, I think, is is interesting insight into that where we haven't really figured out, even in the context of the Navy SEALs, how to train for it. The best we can do is filter for it. So I think part of it is the democratization of information. Certainly not, uh, let's study it, let's look at it, let's collect information, let's understand it more, and let's share that information widely. But I thought it was really fascinating how they openly talk about how it's so expensive to get someone to that high-level Navy SEAL uh, because the best we can do at this point is filter people out by putting through them through this intense training um, series after series because if we could train for it and not screen it, screen for it, uh, it'd be a much more efficient way to go about it. So I think these questions will always, uh, or for at least for a long time until we have better information about it and collected information about it, will continue to uh, be the important questions to ask and, and to dig into. But yeah, you know, I think for us in what we're interested in, what we usually talk about on the show, it's very natural, us, natural for us to dive into the substance and the authority. So I thought it was pretty refreshing that it, it that the story begins here in this highly authoritative hierarchical uh, setting where substances was not even part of the conversation. I have to say I was waiting for like the end of that part of the book to be about how they were meeting with Rick Doblin because he had the solution. <laughs> right (laughs) never happened did it yeah (laughs) it didn't happen didn't happen well someday well they flowed right from there they kind of switched gears um i think provocatively and purposefully kind of switched gears from the navy seals to talking about how the founders of google were trying to hire a ceo and how they spent a year interviewing people and it's the first mention in the book of Burning Man, which is something that we know and love. And it kind of goes from this one end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, it goes from one end of the spectrum to another in terms of, you know, drawing the clear connections and allusions to what was happening with the Eleusinian mysteries. And for some people, what happens every year um, at Burning Man. Right. Didn't, well, I think to your point you, uh, about to your point about the seals, um, you know, th- th- this is like a, a maybe a blind spot in uh, in the military, maybe for good reason, um, that uh, they they can't necessarily they're not open necessarily to using some of these substances and experiences to train for um, you know some of the th- things they're seeking dynamic subordination and, and so on. Um, because they just, these substances are kind of off limits, you know, I mean, less, less so, um, you know, uh, as, as the days go on. Um, but traditionally, certainly, um, you know, aside from some, uh, you know, military research that we all know about MK ultra and things like that, they, uh, it, you know, typically these substances are not used, I think in that, in that way, um, in, in the military, 
Um, whereas, you know, I think the contrast illustrates this perfectly where Google, you know, they're very open to the, to these things, um, you know, and that helped them identify Eric Schmidt as a, uh, you know, as a, the, the best CEO candidate they could find uh, because he had already been to Burning Man. It wasn't even like a rite of passage to bring him through. He already was uh, someone who, uh, you know, who had gone there. So, um, you know, and, and that just, and then they use that to also launch into the fact that, you know, in Silicon Valley in general, uh, certainly these substances, just mind enhancing substances, performance enhancing substances are certainly, um, you know, not only, uh, you know, uh, an option for people, but there's a lot of people uh, using them very, you know, uh, on a regular basis to, to enhance their performance at work and, and in life. Yeah. Did I tell you guys that I saw Eric Schmidt at Burning Man this year? Oh, you did? I've oh, no. heard stories about that. He's riding yeah. around his Segway or something. <laughs> yeah, he, well, it was the night of the burn. I was with um, one Bobby Light, uh, and he, he recognized him. I don't, I don't good, know if I would have recognized him. <laughs> I don't know if I would have recognized him, um, but he having uh, – anyway, we were, we were at uh, a party at Mayan Warrior. And he just kind of walks by and standing in front of us for a little while. And he's like, nudge me. He's like, you know who that is? I'm like, no. It's like, it's Eric Schmidt. I'm like, wow, that's pretty surreal. <laughs> he's just <laughs> like another dude at a party like we are. Um, he was, he was uh, dynamically subordinating at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. That is yeah. such an interesting concept you identified there, Brad, that dynamic subordination. Yeah, I that's think very it's cool. a brilliant idea. Like the, the way that the SEALs, there, there's no specific leader um, who's like in charge of the mission, say, to go, you know, re recapture some hostages or something like that. Um, you know, the, by nature, uh, the group has to constantly... Uh, you know, be be shifting their, uh, you know, everything about the mission is is kind of like subject to the environment they find themselves in. And so there might be a leader who's, you know, the first one to go through a door, uh, but then immediately another leader might emerge, you know, based on the circumstances they find themselves in. And, exactly. you know, it just reminded me again, like as a, I mentioned, like a like flock hive of mentality. Yeah. It's like a hive mentality. It's like a flock of birds or like a school of fish, you know, these mysterious processes. If you If you just look in the sky and you see these birds flying, there's no... It's very hard for us to understand as humans, like driving in a car, um, you know, how the individuals in this group can all make a decision at the exact same moment, you know, can can actually like, mm. react so quickly. Like, how does the bird in the back, you know, uh, <laughs> like respond just as quickly as, you know, to something that the bird in the front is doing? Um, and then how do they decide to go in a different direction and a different bird is now leading? You know, it's just this like emergent, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, phenomenon that we don't quite understand, but again, like the seals are, are like you said, filtering for it. Like they're, they're finding people that can plug into that, but they can't train people to do it. You know, they just have to see who, who's able to inherently do it. Well, it also seems like it seems like such a, such a, a, a logical and intelligent way to carry out something like that. I mean, like why, why would you have such a rigid um, authority structure in such a constantly changing dangerous uh situation but it also does seem like it stands in contrast a little bit to the rest of uh sort of the you know the military in general but uh but i was yeah I, while i was reading that and then you you guys kind of went into the the burning man stuff later it, it reminded me a little bit of also kind of how we do our work as a camp at burning man hmm. and you know of course there is you know there's a good general leadership structure about around different tasks and everything but there there is always kind of a flowing 
uh, you know, changing leadership as uh, as different moments arise and different people are in certain situations or different problems arise. And um, it just seems very, like you said, it's like a very um, in the moment sort of flow state kind of way to carry out a task. I've, I've heard other organizations refer to that as a duocracy. You know, it's, it's not that there's mm. a structure imposed from, you know, the, uh, the, the, the authority at the top. Um, there's, it's sort of like an inherent, you know, self-organizing system of people who, you know, whoever gets things done, you know, kind of has a certain level of, uh, you know, responsibility and authority in, in that, in that scope of what they're getting done, you know, and it's kind of the way the camp self-organizes as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And I I was also, uh, as Joe was talking about that, thinking about Burning Man, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about the build. I was thinking about certain times when a group of us go out on a substance and it's a huge group of us. And that's another example of where dynamic subordination takes hold, where there's a lot of people and it's like, where do we go next? What do we do? And there's this fluidity of Hey, that thing looks cool. Let's go look at that. Or, you know, like, Ooh, I I think it's time to listen to music or I think it's time to like look at art and to see sort of dynamic subordination in that context. And And it's to differentiate, at least the way I understood it and having read it, it's not that there is a lack of leadership. It's that there is always a sense of leadership, mm-hmm. but it's the fluid nature of that of that leadership and how um, it's not like anarchy per se. It's there is structure to it, but it's the ability to be amorphous and let that structure fit the moment. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that that same night that you described as well, Brad. Uh, being a part of that, you know, that large group, um, everyone enhanced on on a substance, and uh, and therefore, uh, you know, yeah, flowing much better as a group and feeling that, feeling that from being inside of the group, feeling like we, you know, are approaching something as a group. And and I, I always kind of um, it thought of it as like it's almost like a. Uh, like an amoeba subsuming some kind of, you know, food source or something like that. Like where you just sort of like, you know, we like meld around an art project and our camp, you know, sort of like overtakes this art project and, and experiences it from all the different senses everyone's bringing to this, uh, you know, this, this moment of, of like observation from all, all angles. And like, we, we, like, we literally like, you know, come upon an art project sort of like uh, climb on and over it completely <laughs> en- encompass it and then like come out the other side and like continue down the playa, you know, and there's this like, we, we've like basically absorbed all of the like information of this art project and everyone has like some bit of the piece of the, you know, puzzle to share later back at camp or something the next day. But yeah, it's, it's really an interesting phenomenon to be a part of, to be a part of a group that's experiencing this kind of like, you know, it's, it's partially that dynamic subordination and it's partially just like that flow state that we find ourselves in. Um, it's, it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite interesting and it's so, yeah, it reminds me of, um, it's, it's like, uh, there, there's like a subordination to our own, like, uh, some internal, like intentionality or something. There's also like on the micro scale, you know, individual scale, we're sort of subordinating the, the part of our, um, brain that is like thinking about everything, you know, like thinking like, what do I want to do? Would it be better to go to A or be better to go to B? I don't know. I guess, you know, option A has these benefits and option B has these other benefits. And there's, that's not happening. 
you know, none of that's happening. Like we're just basically, there's like a subordination to like a, uh, a more basal kind of instinctual level, I think. And, and the group, you know, guided by their own instincts makes these decisions as a whole. So you think that the uh, Navy SEALs could save a lot of money by just uh, filtering at Burning Man directly? Pretty much, yeah. Well, I mean, the book left open this very obvious question of like, what happens, what would happen if the Navy SEALs would drop some acid? And, <laughs> yeah. you know. Agreed, agreed. I'm sure Tim Ferriss will have an episode about that at some point. <laughs> right. That that might segue well. We, we had alluded to the four types or categories of ecstasis, uh, but maybe this this is a good time to kind of jump into that. So uh, chapter two in the book, you know, once it kind of introduces the idea of what is this fire, starting to ask the question of why it matters, you know, what is the relevance of it? And the, the kind of framework, the categories that they describe, uh, it's S-T-E-R. Uh, I don't know if it's meant to be stir or like a, just S-T-E-R, but what that stands for is S is selflessness, T is timelessness, uh, E is effortlessness, and then the R is richness. And then it, it chapter two is all about digging into those um, and, and being able to categorize it in these ways to be able to uh, understand and communicate about it. Again, I think the ability to sort of create a vernacular and, and to create a baseline for how to talk about this is part of democratizing the information. It's, you know, the, the, the ineffability of a lot of these experiences, I think, can make it hard to be productive about what those experiences mean to us personally. So I appreciate the effort of these ways we can talk about it and these ways we can do research upon it. Um, so like with selflessness, for example, it's a lot like what we've been talking about through dynamic subordination. Another way I think of describing selflessness is uh, um, removing the ego or ego death. The concept of timelessness certainly these experiences are characterized by timelessness. I completely I get why that's that's a part of it. The one criticism I have is that they make their point by doing a Google search for the word time, you know, and I thought that <laughs> exactly if that like <laughs> is a valid, um, you know, way to make a point like they, they say, you know, basically there's 11.5 billion hits for the word time in comparison, uh, more obvious topics of interest like sex and money rank a paltry, you know, 2.75 billion and 2 billion respectively. I just think time is probably a word that appears in a lot more sentences than, you know, sex or money, for example. I, um, I thought about that uh, because I search for the, the times in different parts of the world a lot because of my work. Right, exactly. Right. And and I've probably written the word time like 10,000 times. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't know if this is a valid conclusion where they say time and how to make the most of it appears to be about five times more important to us than making love or money. Like, I, I mean, I, maybe that's true. I just don't know if you can conclude that from like, you know, just the raw, like Google search result. Uh, when people are looking for like how much time to make a hard boiled egg. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I, there's a part that, uh, I, yeah, I agree with the idea that it, it feels a bit arbitrary <laughs> to, draw deductions from something like that um but it there it, within that section one part that i kind of spoke to me was where it said where is it i'm just kind of sifting through my notes um i like this quote it says and when we do slow life down so kind of talking about being present 
Uh, it says, when we do slow life down, we find the present is the only place in the timescape hmm. that we get reliable data anyway. Interesting. So get kind of lending credence to the idea of presence and immediacy. You know, obviously our, our memories are, are fallible and, you know, if we're kind of dwelling too much on the future. Um, but the idea that if you can expand your ability to observe the present moment, that's, uh, that's good data. We should talk a little bit about the scope of, of how they get into, um, how they enter into this conversation in general, you know, because this is sort of informed by, by the background of the authors. Um, they are, did they found the, the Flow Genome Project? Yes. Um, they're, they're involved with this, you know, Flow Genome yeah, Project. Yeah, no, I think that's their thing. Yeah, and they study the relationship between altered states and peak performance, and they focus primarily on the experience known as Flow. Um, and flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. Flow refers to those in the zone moments where focus gets so intense that everything else disappears. So, you know, so clearly the, the whole idea here is like, how can we as a, you know, as individuals and, and probably as a society uh, at large, um, you know, experience more optimal uh, functioning in general. So, um, and that's where we get into, uh, you know, these, these qualities of this experience that, uh, you know, can, can help us, uh, you know, it's like, if you can identify the qualities of the state of, uh, of flow, um, then you can maybe more easily, uh, you know, reproduce it or, um, you know, determine what activities or, uh, methods you can use to get back there. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. That's exactly it is trying to understand it in a meaningful way. Brad, do you want to try to pronounce the um, the uh, author's name who wrote the book on flow? Oh wait, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Mihaly Shizek Mihaly or something like that. What's his What's his first oh, name? Oh, I see. <laughs> um, shit. Oh gosh, that's a good one. C S I K S Z. Not enough uh, vowels in there. I don't know what to do, <laughs> and it's like ninety four percent consonant. In an effort to to make it meaningful, I think they, it's, you know, they're kind of learning how to do that. And so I think there, there are more moments like that in the book where they draw conclusions or they represent something in a very brief cursory way. And it, and it seems like a little bit of a shortcut. Like, I don't know guys like that just cause people Google the word time a lot. Like you can't really deduce something so, so large, but I, I personally really appreciate the effort to do so. Um, and in this section of the book, S-T-E-R, um, the, the section around richness for me was by far the most highlighted section of the book. Like this is everything in this section because richness is basically like getting high. <laughs> that's, that's the, yeah, it's also the, sort of kind of like the depth of the experience, right? And like just kind of the whole like neurochemical puzzle yeah, uh, that's kind of going on or like how how it can make you feel. And I appreciate certain parts of it when they talk about, for example, how it affects um, your perception of novelty. Mm -hmm. And, and that, uh, and I, and I'm sure everyone's had this experience where, you know, it could be something that you've, I don't know, some experience or something you've done a thousand times, but during the uh, kind of the peak of the experience, it can feel like extremely novel or like it's uh, noetic in that sense of like, I'm, it's, mm -hmm. I'm gaining all of this like knowledge around this completely novel experience when maybe it's something you've done a thousand times. Yeah. Yeah. not like I've described that to people who've, you know, have asked sort of what altered states can feel like or what, 
you know, more specifically LSD can feel like. And particularly my initial experiences with it, uh, I found that to be a great way to describe it. Just an overwhelming sense of novelty to all things that we normally experience and take for granted. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a part in this section of richness where they describe uh, what the term umwelt means, U-M-W-E-L-T. And I thought this was great. It kind of goes back to the timelessness part of, you know, being in the present moment. Uh, it's a good way to collect data. So um, I'm going to read a, a, a brief passage. Um, umwelt is the technical term for the sliver of data stream that we normally apprehend. It's the reality our senses can perceive. And all umwelts are not the same. Dogs hear whistles we cannot. Sharks detect electromagnetic pulses. Bees see ultraviolet light. Uh, while we remain oblivious, it's the same physical world, the same information, just different perception and processing. But the cascade of neurobiology, neurobiological change that occurs in non-ordinary states lets us perceive and process more of what's going on around us and with greater accuracy. In these states, we get upstream of our umwelt. Yeah, that's very well said. That's sort of that uh, kind of matrixy feeling you can have sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah, where yeah. like, well, and, I, and also just think like, uh, I don't know, as I don't know exactly when the first moment in your life is that you become, you know, I'm, I'm, it's probably even after high school where you kind of kind of aware of what consciousness is, um, and then this sort of kind of gets behind the whole thing, and and I thought it was a really good example, like comparing different animals because I feel like sometimes it's hard for someone to conceive of what that means when we talk about the brain being a reduction valve and sort of like we get only a part of the information. I think sometimes that can be a kind of a confusing thing to explain to somebody and you can sound like you're kind of an out there hippie uh, trying to do so. But uh, in this case, it's, you know, really well explained. I mean, there's kind of all this information, as you said, like the same uh, bits and bites all around us and we're all, you know, all of us and then all these different species of animals just kind of picking them up in different ways. So maybe we can talk about sort of chapter three now, uh, subtitled Why We Missed It. So this is the introduction of the the idea of the pales, um, which is, I guess, a fence is a good way to describe what a pale is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I kind of, when I opened the chapter, it's like, it's like a word you've heard, I feel like in old songs and poetry and things like that, but I never really, you know, you kind of understand that it's a border or a limit of some kind. But I actually looked looked into that, and I guess in uh, medieval England, Ireland, they uh, they would kind of the the kind of the limits of a of a territory. I guess they would uh, build fences called pales, and they'd even dig like ditches behind them and whatnot. They're also used for hunting and some other things. So yeah, I guess the idea is just that it delimits an area, and it's sort of kind of the outer border, the the wall from you know. Game of Thrones, if you will. Well, yeah, the title <laughs> of this um, this chapter, or I, I guess the heading for this chapter, uh, is Beyond the Pale, you know, which is a, a phrase mm-hmm. that I think uh, listeners may have, uh, you know, heard more commonly without knowing, you know, I didn't know what, what the word pale meant either in that, in that sense. But um, it's defined as, uh, you know, beyond the pale means uh, outside the bounds of acceptable behavior. Um, and the example is, you know, the language my father used was beyond the pale. <laughs> I could relate to that one. Um, I thought so, they were talking about my skin color when I first read that. <laughs> <laughs> so they talk about the different pales, right? And uh, I guess, um, you know, there's the pale of the church, um, the pale of the body, and the pale of the state. And, and these are the three kind of, uh, 
I guess, you know, limiting structures imposed upon us, um, you know, either directly through, uh, you know, through <laughs> you could throw someone in jail if they break certain rules or just sometimes even self-imposed, you know, with self-censorship and uh, things along those lines um, that keep us from maybe venturing, you know, outside of the, the norm. And that's, I guess, yeah, or, or, or even without punishment or anything else, just sort of like the uh, whatever the institution is, it sort of um, creates sanctioned versions of these things. Right. So it's like I think in the in the pale of a state, he mentions uh, or they, they mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, while we have all these substances that uh, you know, on David Nutt's list that kind of rank in different uh, you know, levels of, of danger and, and risk to your health. Um, you know, some of them, and he, he says the number one, um, the number one substance for risk is alcohol and that is completely sanctioned by the state. So sometimes not even, you know, not going somewhere because that's beyond the, beyond the limits and you can't do that. It's also like, well, why don't you just, you just have, you have this thing right here. It's all around you. Yep. Uh, and it's completely normal from the second you're born to see alcohol everywhere and for it to be considered totally normal. Yeah, I love the part where they talk about the three substances that sit squarely yeah. inside the state's pale: the coffee break, the smoke break, uh, and happy hour. You know, I, yeah. the concept the, of linking the, those three together is great. The, the state-sanctioned triad. Right. <laughs> love right. that. <laughs> you know, how these two stimulants, you know, coffee, caffeine, obviously, uh, you know, tobacco, nicotine, um, get people through the day. You know, they amplify your performance and keep you alert and awake. And, you know, it, it helps a company churn out, you know, more... Uh, productivity from from their workers, um, and then you know to balance those two things out, you get home from a you know stressful day at work, and you know you have happy hour so that you can kind of like uh, have your uh, you know decompression mm -hmm. time. And uh, it, I mean, it really, it's it's just so interesting to to think how um, you know you you just you're born into this, like you said, you and it just feels normal, it seems normal, um, and you don't you almost like don't question it necessarily, like why these these things? Why are these the sanctioned well, substances? Well, they, I think they there's a part that I highlighted that I think smacks of commentary a little bit where it, it says, without the soothing effects of alcohol, the cigarettes and coffee workforce um, would become jittery wrecks. You know, added some <laughs> booze from time to time and you've got a finely tuned cycle of stimulation, focus, decompression that dovetails with broader economic goals yeah yeah very well said and, and i feel like they probably they could have included or maybe they could have eliminated caffeine or, sorry uh, nicotine now that uh, cigarettes have kind of been i don't know demonized and and wiped off uh, the map and they probably could have added opioids into the uh, state sanctioned triad at some point right sure. yeah a little bit sure yeah, well, although you know, with with uh, you know all the vaping that's going on, e-cigarettes um, are making sure. you know to, uh, nicotine a much more acceptable and normalized kind of uh, you know stimulant in in everyday society. I mean, I think that's still kind of playing out, and, and we'll see um, you know what what happens there. But yeah, it's not really uh, you know looked on too kindly to smoke a cigarette, uh, you know, a traditional cigarette during the the workday inside the office. Uh, certainly, you know, or, or right outside, it has a certain like um, stigma, right? Like, yeah, a, it, it, yeah, it just seems like it's sort of, you know, yeah, it's changed in our lifetime. I feel like when we were kids, it was totally normal, and now I feel like there's a certain, uh, it has a certain lack of classiness mm -hmm. or something associated with uh, with, with uh, a, a smoked cigarette, right? And I think, like you said, it's interesting that now the e-cigarettes are coming back, and they have sort of like a more sophisticated. 
uh, vibe and they kind of kind of, you know, get you around that, uh, that social problem. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. I mean, when I, the other thing about e-cigs is like when I, when I started smoking e-cigs to, in order to, in theory, to help me quit smoking, uh, regular cigarettes, um, I became addicted to e-cigs for a while, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, you know, maybe that's easy to see, uh, that that's an expected, uh, outcome, but in any case, um, I did. And one thing about it, one reason why was that, you know, you can smoke e-cigarettes. Uh, I mean, I found I could smoke them at my desk. I'd be on a stressful phone call with a client or something, and I'd just be puffing away on my, uh, e-cig because the smoke doesn't really linger. You know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't stain anything, doesn't, doesn't make it smell in your office really once it goes away. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, Hey, you know, nicotine is a great stimulant. Um, you know, same thing within the car, just smoke in the car and, and it doesn't linger. It doesn't, you know, get, doesn't stain the, uh, upholstery or anything like that. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's easier to do, uh, and just get the beneficial effects without the negative kind of, um, you know, stigmatizing effects of, of having like, you know, stale smoke smells, uh, everywhere in your clothing and things. One of the, uh, the things that I was, uh, was kind of going through my head as I was reading this part was, um, if you, if you think back historically in sort of the, uh, you know, the, the different substances that were available to, to achieve, uh, you know, different states of mind, uh, they've, they've sort of been, you know, state as in, in, from a state perspective, toned down, uh, as time has gone on, right? Like you go, you know, back to the beginning where you have sort of ceremonial mushrooms and, uh, and then you move, move kind of later on into other times in history where it's like soma and other sort of other substances. They're a little little less strong, but still state sanctioned, whatever. Now we're down to the point where it's like these things, like caffeine and alcohol. Um, and I just wonder if that's sort of related to the population and sort of the kind of the bigger the population you have and kind of the less instability you can uh, per- permit amongst that population and so like mm. sort of like so you're always kind of toning down the degree to which those people can get hive because they'll you know it could cause serious social unrest and uh and political instability yeah yeah good question well i think the i think that's a big part of the pale of the state and the pale of the church you know those two historical you know larger society limiting factors uh, I think are quite intuitively understood in that sense. You know, the pale of the state is, I think, more prevalent now. And the pale of the church historically has been uh, what's keeping, keeping, attempted to keep these things at bay. I thought the pale of the body was interesting and a little less uh, intuitive, but the pale of the body kind of talks about to the degree that we are cyborgs already and to the degree that we are evolving and we're, we're weaving ourselves with technology and how there's sort of a cultural visceral reaction to that notion. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the, the most recent uh, Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, no, not yet. Um, but, I, you know, I think the, the you know, both of those movies kind of to play on that idea of how, um, you know, I, I think people would bristle at the idea that we are already cyborgs, but... One of the examples cited in the book is like, we all wear watches, you know, <laughs> but there are certain acceptable ways that we are already intertwined with technology and, and like, where do we draw the line? What, like, why are we comfortable with some things versus others? Yeah. I think if, if someone doesn't necessarily leave that, I think they should like just turn their cell phone off for a week and see how easily it is to move around and, you know, get anything done. <laughs> I mean, we just, we've like outsourced our memory. 
basically to uh, to our phones now, right? Like, you remember being a kid and, and knowing all your friends' phone numbers? Right. You know what I mean? Like, you just knew all the phone numbers you used to call. Like, I, I don't know my wife's phone number, I swear to God. <laughs> I have no idea what it is. Like, it would, if the police asked me, I would have no idea what to say. The thing that this chapter brought to mind for me um, was the concept of, like, what's natural, you know, both mm-hmm. in the scope of of, uh, of substances, uh, but also in the scope of technology, you know, and, and people think that they have a really strong opinion about like things that are unnatural, like you know, mm-hmm. like, like the you know cyborg, a traditional cyborg uh, kind of uh, you know um, ideas, like uh, you know may, maybe beyond these these things where we t- you know attach a, a watch, you know, a time uh, keeping uh, piece to our wrist, and we you know, have a, um, uh, you know, a, a pacemaker, uh, helping a heart rhythm, uh, mm-hmm. but, but things that are more visible. Like if I had, you know, um, if, if I replaced my eyes with eyes that can see infrared and ultraviolet and, and every other, you know, uh, electromagnetic, uh, you know, spectrum, um, you know, and, and it was like a very obvious kind of like alteration of my normal human form. Um, you know, that seems very unnatural to people. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's an aspect, they call it the uncanny valley when, when you have like something that's a, a, like an animation of a, of a human, it like looks so real, but it's not quite real enough. Um, it just like gives you the heebie jeebies, you know, it gives people like a really uncomfortable feeling (laughs) like animation. That's like really, really good, but not a hundred percent convincing, you know, so if it's if it's like really poor two dimensional animation, we have, we don't feel creepy about like the you know what looks like a person um, you know on screen that's like two dimensional. Um, but the the realer it gets, um, the creepier it gets until it gets to be like a hundred percent convincing. So I think in this weird like we're kind of almost in the una- uncanny valley of uh, you know altering ourselves into cyborgs, where people have feel like these things are unnatural uh, to some extent, um, and you know I'm not quite sure why. I mean. You know, it's new. It's it's definitely not something that you see uh, every day in in nature. Um, but you know, it shouldn't. It's it's not that new because of you know, like the historical uh, you know reference for these different. Um, you know, like again, you mentioned keeping a watch on your wrist or a phone in your pocket. Um, these are ways we're already augmenting ourselves with technology that's totally natural to people. Um, but what about substances? What about like this concept of you know smart um, drugs and. Yeah, or, or even like, you know, mushrooms um, because they, they just grow from nature or cannabis because it grows, you know, like a weed, uh, as they say. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, versus uh, LSD, which, you know, is unnatural because it was created in the lab. Even if you synthesize it from, you know, na- a natural substance, you alter it, you know, a couple, you make a couple of small alterations to, you know, a naturally occurring molecule that a plant produces and you get this completely new substance um, that's, you know, more powerful and everything else. But it's it, for for people, they, they think it came out of a lab and it was synthesized, you know, using chemistry. And so it's unnatural. But, you know, I've always made the argument like we're, you know, humans are, if humans are natural, like maybe that's a big assumption, but I think most people would say humans are like part of nature. So something that a human creates is just as much a part of nature, I think. Yeah, that, that's an interesting argument. I, I always go back to George Carlin's uh, famous, you know, he talked about uh, th- this exact argument about, you know, what's natural and unnatural. And he's like, you know, there's nothing more natural in the world than cancer. You know, and he's like, right. but no one gets upset when cancer dies. <laughs> you know? So you know, he said, no one has a bumper sticker that says I break for advanced melanoma. 
you know so <laughs> you know i think it's a great a great one to just kind of always bring you back and remind you like just to kind of take you back outside the semantic argument and think about like what do these things really mean like who decides exactly what's natural um and then and then uh, and like you said is is you know but then to say is everything a human produces natural because you know that that kind of instills the power of god into us that uh i don't know if i'm completely comfortable with that but <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely an interesting argument. Well, I mean, if, if you have a, you know, like a, a relatively closed system, like the uh, ecosystem of the earth, and you have this species like living on the surface of the earth, you know, and creating things and doing things with things that they find on the earth. I mean, what's unnatural about that? You know, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's worse to say like, we're doing unnatural things with, you know, I mean, it starts with a rubbing two sticks together, you know, and then goes, goes from there. Like, the church doesn't like when, when you rub two sticks together. <laughs> Excellent point. And one's always been prohibited. That's, uh, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> Don't do that. Right. I mean, you know, you find, you find a clump of, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, some kind of a plant and, and then you, um, I don't know, you, you find a way using, using the, the sun and, uh, you know, heat from a fire or something to, extract um you know to to make it stronger i mean like at what what point you know does that basic like uh you know witch's cauldron kind of scenario um you know mm. flip over into being being considered chemistry and then at what point is like chemistry you know where do you draw the line where you know something is like a natural um you know uh like alteration of of nature versus a you know uh, unnatural yeah, like impossible that it would exist you know without us or yeah I, I don't know. I, I agree with you there. I mean, I think that's like you're you're kind of limited by like human logic and semantics. Uh, however, I always feel like the kind of natural unnatural argument is uh, difficult anyway because sort of you'd have to – in order for your argument to be valid, you'd have to kind of live your life 100 percent behind whatever your conception of that is. And whereas, you know, someone will be telling you like LSD is unnatural like while they're smoking a cigarette. You know what I mean? It's like right. – you know, it's a very it's very hard to be one hundred percent you know behind all your ideas and, and live live them out. So yeah, maybe that's a more interesting argument. Is like, is you know, is it does it have to be something or is the formula that not that this would never have existed ever by any means if it hadn't been for human intervention or is human intervention in and of itself just enough of an excuse to say uh, that? Well, that's that that's actually a nice little teaser for a subsequent section in the book. Um, in that it talks about, you know, altered states, whether they're substance related or not. Um, there seems to be a link to how that's related to human evolution. You know, we've talked before about mm. sort of whether, you know, certain religion religions, the whole ideas of religion were spawned through visionary uh, moments. Um, but how there is a natural part of how we as humans have evolved with our relationship with altered states mm. and how human intervention has allowed certain uh, species of plants or certain crops or different ways that animals we've had a huge impact on nature um, with with like a co-evolutionary way uh, centered around the idea of altered states and what you know we've chosen to proliferate um, both in ourselves and what we're cultivating Right. I mean, we, we have an effect on, you know, like natural selection, right? The process of natural selection you use, you use, you know, um, humans can, uh, you sort of guide that process. I mean, you can, you can select, uh, the best of breed, you know, um, characteristics 
to develop really weird looking dogs, for example, you know, <laughs> yeah. are like you dog, French it's, bulldogs. It's like <laughs> fundamentally, it's just dogs having sex, you know, and then like the yeah. result is this like weird looking dog. But um, you know, it's it's because of like uh, you know human humans getting involved in that process that you know, that those dogs were the result, um, and, you know, and, and same thing with, uh, I don't know, plants like you, you know, selecting the, the best, uh, the best from the crop and, and, you know, breeding, uh, you know, uh, those seeds and, and selecting those seeds and, and breeding, you know, better and better, more resilient crops and things. But then you have, a, you know, you draw the line somewhere and then you have, you know, ge- like straight up genetic modification where we're like, you know, f- like actually changing the genes inside of the organism, um, you know, using, using science as opposed to like agriculture. So, I, I mean, mm. I, again, it's all really a continuum and, and why is anything that we do considered unnatural? I mean, maybe some of it is ill-advised, but I don't know if I'd call it unnatural. It makes me wonder if like the, you know, when the first like cavemen started cooking food, if there were like the, you know, the older guys were around being like these guys, it's just so unnatural. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. What do you, you what do you guys think? Eat right? your rabbits alive and raw. Yeah. I feel like we got pretty good coverage on the on the section. There there was there was one last thing I kind of wanted to uh get in there, which was this like mm-hmm. individualism versus collectivism thing. Okay. I thought was really fascinating. Um I think in the uh you know, it's a, it's like a fundamental characteristic of American society, the sort of uh, rugged individualism and, and the kind of the, the will of the individual. And also kind of in our politics uh, in general, we, we tend to sort of favor the the successful individual and and sort of not not uh, pay a lot of attention to the failed individual. But um, I think they make a lot of a, a point about how these experiences provide, and, and we, even without substances, but these experiences provide for a sort of a kind of the, the fusion or the union of a group of people, um, and it's a very collective experience. And it just made me wonder if maybe that's part of what we find uh, difficult about it, specifically in the United States, uh, where we're we're a little bit leery of anything collective and. It, that even the word collective smells of communist Russia, um, <laughs> right. you know, and, and so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I just, I, it made, it just made me think is, is, is that part of the fear perhaps from the, the side of authority is that, you know, maybe this will be a little bit more, uh, unifying and maybe not even unifying against the power structure, but just unifying in ways that cannot be predicted and cannot be controlled. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, it it just made me think too. It's like when we're thinking of that, it's like, are are we perhaps always you know kind of downplaying the the downside of of things? Um, you know, it, th- there is obviously you know, a high possibility of of negative outcomes as well, and that's why we've talked about regulation and administration and all these these other things. But uh, you know, is th- is that perhaps like the great fear is that we don't know what <laughs> large groups of people with unlimited access will do. Well, it reminds me of uh, one of those, you know, uh, urban myths about LSD that I, that I remember hearing, uh, you know, like er- early on in my exploration of this subject, uh, that, uh, if you, if you gave a group of seven people, LSD <laughs> seven, exactly seven, <laughs> right. You know, like, I don't know if it was seven or more, 
you know, it's like you, you there's these like ideas that like, if you, you know, there, there's like, you reach a critical mass of, of, uh, of, of knowledge or something like of people, you know, if, if enough people trip in a room, they would solve like world peace, you know, or, or something. And this is why like, it's illegal because we can't let that happen. I, I don't know, you know, but like, it's, <laughs> but I, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's like the, we don't know yet. Like we really, we don't know what effect like unbridled, um, you know, access to these, these substances would, would, uh, would lead to. I mean, then again, we also had some form of that in the sixties. Um, and you know, it didn't, uh, I mean, it did, it did have major cultural like repercussions. Well, yeah. And that's a perfect example. It's like you had, when, once you started having like widespread unregulated, uh, use, it's like, it's sort of like if you're kind of in the authority structure, it's like, that's your recent memory, right? Is that sort of things became highly destabilized, um, and, you know, and, and there was a potential for serious, uh, just, just really serious social problems. I mean, there were, or, or I don't mean social problems, I mean more in like, in terms of like macro political problems where, um, you have large swaths of society sort of, you know, kind of, becoming highly disenchanted with the system protesting and um you know just just general discontent everywhere so maybe, maybe is that that kind of like the lingering fear uh still there on the part of the authorities oh completely i i think you know the authorities were kind of uh you know a little skeptical on the that you know uh, turn on, tune in part, but the drop out part of, of Tim yeah. Leary's, uh, you know, whole, um, you know, uh, concept was just terrifying, you know, cause the, the drop out part means that the people who, you know, who the, the authorities rely on, um, to like do the actual work and basically send wealth upwards, um, if we, if we drop out their whole system collapses, you know, they can't let that happen. Um, but, and at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily the right answer either. I mean, you know, yeah. we've, we've achieved a lot in, you know, as a society, you know, despite all the negative consequences of, of the, the current power structure that's really been in place for a really long time, we have really achieved a lot. So I don't know if like throwing it away is really the right way to, to no, do it, I, but we sort of need to invent something better. I think that's really the, you know, sure, but I think I think that that that's exactly what you know they're talking about about kind of that like unknown risk of the collective, right? It's like like yeah, I mean that that you know, and I would agree with you, that sounds great. Like let's <laughs> let's all have access to this and f figure out how we can do this better. But you know what is better, and everybody has a different vision of that. And once uh, that sort of uh, power, like the, the the once the fire is stolen and distributed amongst a new group of people with different interests, uh, you know what what could that possibly look like? Um, I don't know. Well, it, it could be, it's a very yeah. At the very least, I mean, it means that the people that are currently in power will probably no longer be in power, and that's obviously like why nothing has changed. Because that's you know that's like above all else. I think that the you know the authorities maintain want to maintain authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're nothing's going to happen until. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's why part of me thinks this, the fire, you know, we need to steal the fire and uh, just give it away to everybody. <laughs> but that's, again, that's the sixties. <laughs> and I don't know if that really is going to lead to any fire sale. Yeah. Fire, <laughs> <Right>. fire sale. <laughs> oh my God. There's yeah. a fire sale. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to shout that in a crowded theater, by the way, that's against the rules. <laughs> There's a pail for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get the pail yeah <laughs> oh man 
All right. I think we've reached the pale of this episode. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. This was part one of a three-part series talking about Stealing Fire, a book by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. And you'll be able to find a link to that book and uh, the rest of our show notes at entheogenshow.com. We invite you to support us on Patreon with a small monthly contribution, which really helps us keep the show going. We really appreciate it. And you can also follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.